the last seven weeks, you know, we've been in a series called Messages in the Miracles, where we've been looking at Jesus' miraculous signs in the book of John. And last week, we looked at a really, really dramatic miracle, uh, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And that is actually the last miracle in John before the biggest one of all, which is the one we're celebrating next week, the resurrection. And if you were here last week, hopefully you remember me saying that when Jesus did that miracle, it was like he was knowingly signing his death warrant. Uh, Because in doing that miracle, Jesus was returning to an area that was very close to Jerusalem. And there were a lot of people in Jerusalem that wanted Jesus dead. Uh, The last time that Jesus was in Jerusalem, he had said some things that were very offensive to the religious leaders. He had said that I and the Father are one, making himself equal with God. And the religious leaders actually picked up stones to kill him right then and there, uh, in that moment. And so it was very risky for him to go anywhere near Jerusalem. But he did, in order to heal Lazarus. But of course, not only did Jesus go near Jerusalem, but he then did a very public and very incredible miracle in healing somebody who had been dead for four whole days. Someone who had been wrapped up in linens, put away in a tomb, left for dead, not coming back and he brought him back. So the miracle that Jesus did was guaranteed to make the religious leaders even more jealous of him than they already were, and even more determined to kill him, and to cause an even greater stir surrounding him. So it was very risky what Jesus did. So if you were concerned at all about self-preservation, and you were Jesus, the first thing that you would do after healing Lazarus is you would hit the road and get out of there as fast as possible. But this this day, Palm Sunday, is special because this is the day when we commemorate that Jesus did the opposite of that. Rather than running in in the other direction, Jesus went right into the belly of the beast, right into the hornet's nest, marched right into um, the most dangerous place possible for him. And not only did he go to Jerusalem, but he went to Jerusalem at what would probably be the most dangerous time to go the time that would cause the biggest stir, because he went during the Feast of Passover. And during the Feast of Passover in Jerusalem, the population would double. Okay? It would go from about 50,000 to 100,000. There would just be this influx of people coming uh, to celebrate the Passover. And all these people would camp out on the hillsides surrounding the city. And these people, by and large, were not happy with the political situation. In Israel. Uh, they weren't happy that Israel was under the authority of Rome. And so, again, if Jesus wanted to keep a low profile, this is just a terrible time to go to Jerusalem because all these people are restless. They're, they're, they're restless for a political revolution. And that is exactly what they were expecting the long awaited Messiah to do. And many of these people knew that this man named Jesus was fulfilling. The Messianic prophecies. He was doing things like raising a man from the dead and uh, giving sight to the blind and helping the lame to walk. And so if Jesus walks into Jerusalem right now, people are going to go crazy. People are going to go nuts. And if he wants to keep a low profile and survive, this is the worst time to go. But he does go, and the people do go nuts. Uh, so if you have your Bible, open up to John Uh, chapter 12, starting in verse 12. 
John 12, starting in verse 12. All right. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast, those uh, 50,000 people, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So I like to imagine what this moment would be like if it happened today. Uh, If you were someone who lived in Jerusalem and you went on Facebook, I have every confidence that this event would be in your trending stories on the right-hand side next to your newsfeed. You know, Jesus the miracle worker uh, returns to Jerusalem. And I'm sure your newsfeed would be filled with pictures of Jesus arriving, pictures that your friends uh, tried to take with their, with their phones. Some people would pri- probably try to take selfies with their palms in hand when Jesus was going by, you know. And then I like to imagine uh, the kinds of comments that might show up under those, uh, those pictures on Facebook and Instagram. So, okay, let's say that this is our picture on social media. There aren't any actual pictures, of course, so I have to do with an illustration here. Um, Here's my best guess as to the sorts of things we, we might see underneath this picture. My uncle was there when this guy made bread pretty much out of thin air. He's the real deal. I think our king has arrived. I was at a funeral last week in Bethany, and he brought the dead guy back to life. No lie. The guy had been buried for four days. Most incredible thing I ever saw. Don't think we're going to be paying taxes to Rome much longer. Hashtag MIGA, which, as you can probably guess, stands for Make Israel Great Again. I love you, Jesus. Heart eye emoticons. That donkey, though. Uh, We have a hater. This man doesn't keep the Sabbath, is friends with tax collectors and prostitutes, and made a terrible scene in the temple. Hashtag, not my king. So, and then of course somebody would would come to Jesus' defense. Well, let's see. He raises the dead, turns water into wine, casts out demons, and makes the blind see. Doesn't any of that count for anything? Hashtag, the king is here. And then the, the retort... Following the law is what really counts for something. If he really does have power, it's coming from the devil. And the response, so the devil's casting out demons now? Give me a break. 
Of course, this would probably go on ad infinitum, but we'll stop here. <laughs> but, um, and then getting back to the main thread, okay? I'm really glad he's back, but why is he on a donkey? This isn't the time for peace, it's the time for war. Get on your horse, Jesus. Kind of disappointing. Where's the horse? I never thought I'd live to say this, but the prophecies are being fulfilled. What a time to be alive. Time to rally the troops. Israel's not going to be under anyone's feet any longer. All right, I could go on, but what I'm trying to show here is that there would have been two primary reactions to Jesus' arrival. One is enthusiasm, and that's mainly what we see here. Uh, because for most of the ordinary people at the, at the Passover festival, most of those thousands of people, Jesus seemed like the promised Messiah. And that meant that they expected that a conquering political leader had arrived. And that's actually why they bring out palm branches. Uh, palm branches were a symbol of Jewish nationalism because there were a lot of palms in that general area. So when they come out and they're waving these branches, it's a little bit like going out and wear, waving the American flag. Um, that's what's, what's going on here. And, and you can see from the things that they're shouting that they see Jesus as a political leader. They call him the king of Israel. And you see that word there, Hosanna. You might be wondering, oh, what does Hosanna mean? Well, it actually means save us. And, you know, when we say Hosanna now and, and we think of save us, we're thinking save me from my sins, right? But for them, it was, it was, it was a very political thing. It was save us from, the, from the, the boot of the Roman Empire. Save us from having to, to pay these taxes we don't want to pay. Uh, give us political dominance. So we see the enthusiastic response here in verses 12, 13. That's the, the first response. But then in verse 19, we, we catch a hint of the second response. And we see in the Pharisees, it says, the Pharisees said to, said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The second reaction there is anger and jealousy. Why? Because for those in positions of power, okay, either political or religious, Jesus' power seemed like a threat to their power. And the more enthusiastic the crowds became, the more angry these people became, the more Jesus seemed like a threat to the power and authority that they had. Now, here's something I want us to notice, okay? Of the, with those two reactions to Jesus, okay, enthusiasm and anger, there is a common theme between those two reactions. They might just seem like radically different, like they have nothing in common, uh, but there is a common theme because the people who are responding with enthusiasm are responding with enthusiasm because they want the political power that they think that Jesus can bring. And the people who are responding angrily to Jesus are responding angrily because they are afraid he is going to take from them the power that they already have. See that common theme there? Now, I, I'm not trying to say that it's wrong to want political power in all cases. I don't think the people were necessarily wrong for wanting to be free from the Roman Empire, for wanting Israel to, to be great. Um, it's definitely not wrong to want political power if you want to use that power to right injustice. 
But I do want us to notice the close relationship between these two responses, that the common theme here is power. For the most part, people are either seeing Jesus as a tool to gaining power, or they're seeing Jesus as a threat to the power that they already have. Common theme is power. And the fact is, Jesus upsets both of these groups of people. Uh, clearly, he's already done that for the second group, right? He's, he's confronted the religious leaders multiple times throughout the Gospels. Uh, he's challenged their doctrine, the way they look at things. He's gone so far as to call them a brood of vipers. Uh, he's challenged the people to think differently from them about what faithfulness to God really looks like. He's challenged them to think, you know, faithfulness to God doesn't really look like this adherence to all these external man-made rules and regulations, but faithfulness to God looks like loving God in your heart, in your intentions, loving God and loving your neighbor. So these religious leaders, they are, they are right to feel threatened by Jesus. He is a threat to their power. He absolutely is. But what's less obvious at this point is that Jesus is going to upset the first group too. Uh, because he isn't going to form an army to lead an assault on Rome. In fact, about 40 years from now, Rome is going to attack Jerusalem and destroy it. And destroy the temple. And there's things that Jesus says in the Gospels that make it clear that Jesus knows this is coming. And he doesn't, he doesn't stop it. You know, Jesus' mission isn't what the people think it is. It's not to make Israel great again, at least not according to their definition of greatness. And Jesus gives a hint that he's not about to give them the kind of power that they're looking for, and that hint is his mode of transportation. Okay, he, he comes in on a donkey. Uh, in those days, if you were about to wage war, you didn't ride in on a donkey. You rode in on a horse. Uh, so Jesus is riding a symbol of peace, not war, which for, for these people would have seemed premature. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's not time for the donkey yet. Okay, maybe after you've ridden the horse and, you know, done the job of fighting the war, then you can come in and ride the donkey. But, but this is premature. Um, this is not what the, most of the people in the crowds would have wanted. But we have to notice that even as Jesus is upsetting expectations, he's also fulfilling scripture. Uh, because as we're reminded, uh, Zechariah 9.9 says that the king of Israel is going to come, he's going to arrive on a donkey. Now, I don't think that when the Jesus was arriving, that people were looking at that donkey and going, oh, this is Zechariah 9.9. Uh, because it actually tells us very clearly that the disciples didn't even realize that that was what Jesus was doing. And actually, some of the other gospel accounts tell us that the disciples deliberately go and get a donkey for Jesus. But they still don't realize, oh, this is a fulfillment of uh, this Old Testament prophecy. And so... I don't think that if the, disciples, if the disciples didn't get it, I don't think anybody did, right? People were not looking at that donkey and going, oh, this is a fulfillment of scripture. People were looking at that donkey and going, where is the horse? 
Where is the symbol of military might? Where is the symbol of political dominance? Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't until after the fact that people looked back on this and they went, oh, okay, he is fulfilling the prophet's words. This is the way that the true king is supposed to arrive, humble and riding on a donkey. So even now, Jesus is hinting that he's not going to satisfy the people's desire for political power. He's not going to satisfy people's desire for power in the way that they were hoping. And within a week, what Jesus is hinting at is going to become true in a very dramatic way, right? Because within a week, Jesus is going to be arrested, crucified, and buried. Not what these people expected. So Jesus upsets uh, both the people in power and the people who want power. Now, I could just kind of stop the message here and be like, so Jesus is just anti-power. But that's not the message that I want to preach, and I don't think that's true. Okay? Jesus is not anti-power. You know, you might remember from the announcements that in a couple weeks we're going to do a seminar here called Tapping into God's Power. And that's because we believe that God wants to empower us in a, in a very real and genuine way. Okay, so Jesus is not anti-power. However, okay, there is a worldly understanding of power and there's a godly understanding of power. And those definitions of power are very, very different. And God is not so interested in giving us the worldly definition of power. And that's what I see in him riding in on that donkey. Um, so let's talk about the difference between these two kinds of power. Okay. okay. Uh, here is how I think the world defines power. If I were to, to describe it in a few sentences, it goes something like this. Power is the ability to get what you want. Power is the ability to assert your will through violence, through force. If you've got a lot of power at your disposal, you have the ability to force your will. Uh, power is the ability to crush your enemies. And power is the ability to rule over others. And this is the way that the crowds on Palm Sunday were thinking of power. That's the kind of power that they wanted Jesus to have, and it's the kind of power that they wanted uh, Jesus to have on Israel's behalf. Right? But a godly understanding of power is really very different from this. Okay? Godly understanding of power isn't so much that power is the ability to get what you want, but power is the ability to do what God wants. Uh, power is not so much the ability to assert your will through violence. Power is the ability to choose not to resort to violence. Do you know how hard it is not to resort to violence sometimes? It's incredibly difficult. When you have feelings of, of anger and you want to take vengeance, oh, especially if, the, if you have the, the resources to, to be violent. So power is not so much the ability to crush your enemies. Power is the ability to love your enemies. And power is not so much the ability to rule over others. Power is the ability to willingly serve others. That's what we're going to see just a little while after this in the book of John, is that Jesus, at the Last Supper, washes the disciples' feet and says, as I have served you, you should serve one another. Okay, this is, this is not power by the world's 
understanding of power. And so here's what I think Palm Sunday needs to remind us of. Here's what we should, we should think when we see Jesus riding in on that donkey. We should think, God's not really interested in giving me the worldly kind of power. Because anyone who wanted that kind of power was disappointed by Jesus. So for any of us who already have that worldly kind of power, um, we need to recognize Jesus challenges that power. He critiques it. And for those of us who don't have that worldly kind of power, but we really want it, uh, Jesus challenges us to seek a different kind of power. And he models for us what that godly kind of power looks like. So to finish up this morning, I just want to talk a little bit about what that godly form of power looks like, what that that power that Jesus models looks like. Um, It looks like Jesus willingly returning to a city where people want to kill him, knowing that it's going to lead to his death. And yet he goes anyway, okay? The ability to choose something like that, to forego your natural concern for self-preservation, that is an incredible act of power. Unbelievable act of power. That is what godly power looks like. Here's another example. So Jesus rides through this crowd of people, this people that uh, are adoring him and expecting him to lead a revolution, but he's indifferent to what they want. Do you notice how crazy that is? You know, I, I mean, I'll confess, and I think most of us are like this, like, you want people to like you. You want people to approve of you. You know, you want people to go, oh, I like that guy. I like the way that guy's doing things, right? But Jesus doesn't seem too concerned about that at all. He's not consulting with the, with the disciples about how to do the best PR here. The only thing that he's concerned about is about doing what, what his father wants him to do, God the Father, and he's concerned about doing what's really in the best interests of the people. And he, if that means disappointing everyone in the process, he's totally okay with that. You know, Jesus is not the sort of person who's going to be checking Facebook to see what everybody is saying under his picture. He's not the sort of person that's worried about how many people have given his picture a like. He's not really that concerned about public opinion. And I want to be clear, that is not because he doesn't care about people. He cares very much about people. But Jesus loves people enough not to care that much whether they like him. I'll say that again because I feel like that sounds like a counterintuitive thing. But Jesus loves people enough not to care that much whether they like him. I think any parents in the room can immediately understand what I mean by that. You know, if you really love someone, especially if you love your child, there are going to be times where you're going to have to do things that are in their best interests that they are not going to like, right? (laughs) That they're going to get upset about. And when we really care about people, we care enough to do the right thing even if they don't approve of it, even if we know we're going to lose some of of their appreciation for us in in that moment. You know, people who are really obsessively concerned about whether other people like them aren't really that concerned about other people, right? They're concerned about what other people can can give them, the sense of validation that they can get through other people. But see, it's really about them. It's not really about the other people. But Jesus doesn't need that approval. 
from everyone else. And because of that, he's free to really love people. Because he's not looking for that validation. And that is power. Right? That's real power, to be free from popular opinion, to not be controlled by the fear of whether or not people are going to approve of you or like you. That's godly power. So, okay. Jesus is so powerful that he's able to choose not to make self-preservation his number one priority, as most of us would. Uh, and he's so powerful, he's able to be indifferent to, to public opinion. But the main way that his godly power is modeled here is in why he's doing these things. He's choosing to forgo self-preservation and public opinion because he loves people, right? Because he loves us. He wants us to be able to experience peace with God and eternal life. And he knows that the only way that that can happen is if he offers his, his life, if he dies on our behalf. And, you know, I know that can be a little hard to understand. Wait, how is it that Jesus dying somehow, you know, saves me from these things? And, and there's, a, there's a lot of ways that the scriptures uh, try to communicate to us how this works. To a certain extent, it's always going to be a mystery. But here's how I encourage you to think about it. Um, one of the ways that the scriptures help us to understand this is this idea of ransom, that Jesus gave his life as a ransom. And what that means is that every one of us is, in a sense, held captive or imprisoned, okay, by sin, death, and the devil. It is like we're in a jail cell that is made from these things, sin, death, and the devil. And there is a very high ransom on freeing us. In fact, this ransom is so high that no human being could ever pay it. You know, it's like $100 trillion. It's just ridiculous. It cannot be paid. So that the only person that can pay that ransom is God himself. And, and the only way it can be paid is by God giving everything, giving his life. And that is what Jesus does to set us free from sin, death, and the devil. That captivity that we're in, he pays this ransom through the offering of his life. And that is what Jesus did, and he did it because he loves us. And that is what power looks like. That is godly power. The ability to love, the ability to give of ourselves, the ability to serve others, and the ability to do those things even when it's super, super hard, even when the public approval isn't there, even when people are mocking and people are disappointed, even when it means letting go of our desire for self-preservation. That's what power looks like. And so this morning, I just have two exhortations for us. The first one is we need to recognize the incredible power of Jesus and how, how beautiful that power is. We need to realize how incredible it is that a man who has the power to bring the dead to life, a man who has the power to walk on water, chose to die, chose to suffer on a cross, chose to serve. And we should celebrate that. Okay, we should be like that crowd that waved those palms. But unlike that crowd, we should wave the palms for the right reasons. You know? Not because we're excited about the political power that he might be able to bring us, but because we know that he has given everything so that we might have peace with God and so that we might live forever with him. 
because Jesus set us free from the power of sin, death, and the devil. And then my second exhortation is this. We need to have our minds renewed so that we can see power from God's perspective rather than the world's perspective. And we need to be, as the church, the kind of people who model a godly kind of power rather than a worldly kind of power. So let's do that in his name. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you did not turn away uh, from the hornet's nest of Jerusalem, from going into the belly of the beast. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that you willingly went to offer your life as a ransom to save us. And Lord, I pray that on this Palm Sunday, uh, we would be filled with the joy of that, Lord, that, that the King has arrived, that you have come to save Lord, I pray that we would see power the way you see it, uh, not the way the world sees it, and that we would live in a way that embodies a godly form of power. And Lord, I pray this week as we uh, prepare ourselves for the celebration on Easter, the celebration of your resurrection, um, that just the the beauty of what you have done would be more and more real to us, God. Uh, Help us to uh, be, be struck by how amazing it is Uh, all over again, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.